This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event, Representing Refugees Today, a panel discussion on legal sector responses to changes in asylum seeker policy and funding. Uh, this has been organised by the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law in collaboration with the Refugee Advice and Casework Service in celebration of Refugee Week. As we begin, we acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose land we meet today and pay respects to their elders past and present. We would like to thank Gilbert and Tobin for generously hosting us this evening. This event is being recorded and the video will be posted on the Caldor Centre website and we encourage you to tweet about this event as well using the hashtags on the screen uh, representing refugees and Refugee Week. It's my pleasure to introduce Renata Caldor who will be making some introductory remarks and introducing our speakers for this evening's event. Renata is well known for her contributions in the field of business, education and community affairs She's currently a director of ASI Proprietary Limited. She is a board director of the Sydney Children's Hospital Network, a member of Chief Executive Women, and a member of the Advisory Council of Alzheimer's Australia, New South Wales. Renata was previously a trustee of the Sydney Opera House, a Judicial Commissioner of New South Wales, Chair of the New South Wales Women's Advisory Council, and Deputy Chancellor of the University of Sydney. She was an inaugural board member of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and has also held board positions of the New South Wales State Rail Board, the Sydney Olympic Bid Committee and the Garvin Medical Research Foundation. She was awarded the Officer of the Order of Australia in 2002 for her many contributions to the community. Renata is a committed advocate for refugees and it was the generosity of her and her husband Andrew that enabled the establishment of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. She is also a Refugee Week ambassador, appropriately for this evening's event, and it, uh, please join me in welcoming her. Well, I'd like to thank you all for coming today. And uh, as um, Francis said, I'm an ambassador for this week for the Refugee Council. Um, I thought it might be uh, good for me to talk a little bit about what Refugee Week is all about. Um, a Refugee Week is Australia's peak annual activity and it's, it's all about raising awareness about the issues affecting refugees and to celebrate the contributions made by refugees to Australia. The theme for Refugee Week this year is With Courage, Let Us All Combine. And that's taken from the second verse of the National Anthem and the theme celebrates the courage of refugees and it, it's also for celebrating people who speak out against persecution and injustice. And it serves as a call for unity and for positive action, encouraging Australians to improve our nation's welfare for refugees and to acknowledge the skills and the energy that refugees bring to our country. And it takes courage to be a refugee. It's got the courage... Refugees actually need a lot of courage. They need courage to not to deny the identity or the beliefs they face in, in, in persecution. They need courage 
to leave all that is familiar and step into the unknown in search of peace. They need courage to keep going in the face of devastating loss, difficulty and despair. They need courage to begin again, to work hard and to maintain hope in an unfamiliar land. But it also takes courage to speak out against injustice. And in Refugee Week, we acknowledge and celebrate the dedication and the bravery of refugee leaders, advocates, and citizens who draw attention to the violation of human rights, who support people at their time of greatest need, and the challenges that callous indifference to the suffering of others has. So Refugee Week theme encourages Australians to celebrate the best aspects of our nation's welcome of refugees, to frankly acknowledge the unjust treatment of asylum seekers and refugees and commit to working to ensure that we, we, we are better people, we are a better nation. Refugee Week hopes to celebrate the positive contributions to Australian society over the last 70 years of more than 800,000 Australians who once were refugees and who, now, um, and who are now our, our citizens. And the theme um, that, we are, that we are celebrating, with courage let us all combine, comes from the second verse of our national anthem, Advance Australia Fair. Now, for those of you who don't know the second verse of Advance Australia Fair, and I have to admit I didn't know it myself until I read it again, the second verse of our national anthem says, Beneath our radiant Southern Cross... We'll toil with heart and hand to make this commonwealth of ours renowned of all the lands. For those who come across the seas, we've boundless plains to share. With courage, let us all combine to advance Australia fair. I think we should all remember that during this week. And um, uh, let's go on with discussing some of the issues that we're, <coughs> that we're here tonight to discuss. Um, let me introduce our panel. Gemma Hollands is a solicitor and an immigration agent at the Refugee Advice and Caseworker Service, or RACS. RACS is a not-for-profit community legal centre providing free expert immig immigration legal advice and assistance to asylum seekers and refugees in Australia. Prior to joining RACS, Gemma worked in legal policy and research at the Anti-Slavery Australia. She previously worked with the International Organisation for, for Migration in East Timor and with the Human Rights Commission. Gemma holds a Bachelor of Law and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Sydney. Welcome and thank you very much, Gemma. Uh, next, we have Michelle Hannon, who is a partner here at Gilbert and Tobin for pro bono service, services and corporate responsibility. Michelle specialises in discrimination and human rights law. She has conducted several public interest and test cases in these areas and made a successful communications to the United Nations Human Rights Committee, alleging human rights breaches by the Australian government. 
Michelle is on the New South Wales Committee for Justice Connect and was formerly on the board of the National Pro Bono Research Centre. Michelle holds a Master's in Law and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Sydney. Welcome, Michelle. David Hume is a barrister at Six Wentworth Shelbourne Chambers and has worked in, on cases in various areas of public and commercial law, including migration, discrimination and human rights. David is a fellow of the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Law and has co-authored two books with Professor George Williams. David holds a Bachelor of Law and Arts from the University of New South Wales and completed a Master of Law at Harvard University as a Monash Scholar. Thank you all for coming and uh, thank you all for uh, being here to, to be part of this discussion. So perhaps if you could come on first, Gemma. Thank you. Thank you, Renata, for your introduction. And I too acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I've worked at RACS now for over four years as a lawyer, and I don't think it's an underestimation to say that for almost every single one of those days, asylum seekers and refugees have been in the news. Even when the news was dominated by um, frivolous stories such as Johnny Depp's dogs, Pistol and Boo, asylum seekers weren't far from our minds with the dogs being branded illegal aliens. Um, and like everyone, when we hear the sorts of news stories that are coming through every day um, at racks, we get sad, we get angry, we get depressed. But then we get on with the job because there's a lot that we can do um, right here in Australia. It might not make the news, but there are currently over 30 or around 30,000 asylum seekers who are living here in the community. Um, they are people who haven't yet had a decision on their refugee status. They've come here generally between one and six years ago, uh, and because there haven't been any uh, protection visa grants in over three years by the current federal government, they've been waiting in limbo. And some people have literally been driven crazy by the uncertainty um, around their future and over such a prolonged period of time. Um, since the first, last federal election, the government has been trying to implement its policy that no person who arrived by boat should be granted a permanent visa. Uh, and that's been the uh, main reason for a lot of this delay. But after numerous failed attempts to implement that policy in December 2014, they finally succeeded. By doing a deal with the crossbenchers, the government was able to pass a law that contained several significant changes to refugee law in Australia. I don't have time tonight to talk about all the significant changes that have happened, but I'm going to just talk about three of the most significant ones that have um, one of the greatest impacts on our clients and our work. And I'll talk about the changes and what sort of work uh, RACS is doing to respond to these changes. The first change I'll talk about is the creation of temporary protection visas. The second is the new fast track process for assessing people's refugee claims. Uh, and the third is the release of children from detention on Christmas Island. Uh, so the first change the, is the creation of temporary protection visas, and that actually involves the creation of two new classes of visas, temporary protection visas and safe haven enterprise visas. Both of these visas are temporary visas that are granted to people uh, who have arrived by boat 
um, without a visa or came by plane also without a visa. The temporary protection visa is a three-year visa that can be renewed at the end of every three years if the person is assessed as still needing Australia's protection. Um, if you have a temporary protection visa, you can never apply for a permanent visa of any kind after that, and you can never apply for Australian citizenship. But perhaps most cruelly, you can also never apply to bring your family members to Australia, um, and you cannot leave Australia to visit family members, for example, without permission of the Minister for Immigration, which is at the Minister's complete discretion. Safe Haven Enterprise visas uh, are similar, but they're a five-year visa, um, and they have the same conditions as temporary protection visas, except for the fact that they provide a possible pathway for permanency. Um, so that pathway is that if a person for three and a half years out of the five years um, works or studies in a regional area, um, then they might have an option of some other type of permanent visa. And the concept is a good one, but the reality is that it's unlikely to benefit more than a fraction of refugees and particularly not benefit the most vulnerable refugees because the only visas that people can apply for at the end of this time are skilled or family stream visas, not permanent protection visas. So that means that um, refugees who happen to have married an Australian permanent resident or citizen might be able to apply for a permanent visa. Um, but people who already have partners and children overseas won't have that option. Uh, and for people who want to apply for a skilled visa, they need extraordinarily high levels of qualifications and English. Um, so for most clients of ours, that's not going to be an opportunity, that's not going to be a possibility. These visas will be granted to any asylum seeker who came to Australia without a visa, regardless of how long ago that was. If they didn't already have a permanent protection visa at the time of the last federal election, um, these two visas are now their only option. And this has led to some absurd results, such as the case of two brothers, one of whom happened to be granted his protection visa before the election for no particular reason, and another one who wasn't. Both these brothers have um, wives and children back home. Um, now one is able to bring them to Australia permanently, and the other could be indefinitely separated from them. The negative impacts on mental health of temporary protection visas have been written about at length, um, and you know we can go on about them forever, but that doesn't help our clients right now, and what our clients right now need is information about what their legal options are and what they can do. Um, for so long, there's been a lot of tight control on information um, by the Department of Immigration, so now asylum seekers are desperate for any information that they can get. To respond to this need, uh, since the end of 2013, RACS has run a series of uh, education and outreach projects so that we can try to get information uh, out there to as many people as possible and keep people up to date um, as the changes happen, rather than people having to rely on rumours. We've organised large community information sessions, usually somewhere in Western Sydney, where we explain what these visas mean in very practical terms. Uh, over the last 18 months, we've held about 150 sessions, both for asylum seekers and also for community organisations. And to give you an idea of the demand, these sessions are often attended by over 100 asylum seekers each time, and we've held them in um, most of the major language groups of all the clients. 
Last year, we also started regular outreach services at Auburn in Parramatta in partnership with local asylum seeker welfare services. So one day a week, a lawyer from RACS goes to Auburn and Parramatta, armed with a talented team of volunteers to run a drop-in service for asylum seekers who want information. And in the, three, in the last three months since temporary protection visas became law, we've seen that the number of people turning up for information at these services has jumped from around six people per day to sometimes over 100. So it's an illustration of the desperation of people out there for information. But to the credit of RAC staff, instead of panicking at these enormous numbers, they've shown an incredible ability to remain calm and think of innovative ways to ensure that every person who turns up there can get some kind of assistance. And this flexibility is key um, in this type of legal environment that changes week to week. This type of work can be incredibly tough though, because often the information and news we're giving people is very, very disappointing. I've stood in front of a um, room full of around 200 Hazara men at their local mosque as they sat cross-legged on the floor. And to tell them that they'll never see their wives and children again is quite simply heartbreaking. Um, but we managed to remember that why we're doing this, and that's because we believe that asylum seekers have a right to know what the law says, what their situation is, so that they can make informed decisions about the future of their lives. The second change to the law um, that has really affected our clients at the moment is the creation of a new fast-track process for assessing the protection claims of asylum seekers who arrived by boat between 13 August 2012 and 31st of December 2014 or 2013. The process is called fast-track assessment and in a lot of ways it's like the ordinary protection visa assessment process. A person completes a form, goes to an interview with the Department of Immigration and then immigration makes a decision. But the fast part of the process is that if the decision is negative, the person does not have the right to appeal the decision to the Refugee Review Tribunal. And instead, uh, in some cases, uh, their matter would be automatically referred to another type of uh, review body called the Immigration Assessment Authority, which will conduct a review just on the papers. Um, the person would not be invited to attend an interview and except in exceptional circumstances, um, the IAA is unable to consider new evidence um, that a person might provide unless there's a good reason. Uh, this restricted right of review means that there's a greater chance that people who um, need protection are going to miss out and could end up being returned to situations where they would face persecution. We know from previous years that the rate of overturn by, of negative immigration decisions by the RRT um, is significant. Um, over the last few years, it's been on average um, at least over 60% for people who arrived by boat. And on top of this, something that I'm not talking about in detail are the changes to the definition of a refugee, which have also happened in, the, in recent months. And these changes mean that it's much more difficult for a person to even be recognised as a refugee. So all of this makes it particularly astounding that um, the government has... Uh, is not providing free legal services to the vast majority of asylum seekers as they previously did. Um, around 80% of asylum seekers are going to have to go through this process alone without any independent immigration advice um, or even without any um, assistance from interpreters except at the interview. 
One small consolation is that the Department of Immigration is providing uh, free legal services to vulnerable persons who, um, or people who are assessed as vulnerable by the Department of Immigration. And we expect that to be possibly up to 20% of asylum seekers. Um, but for the remaining 80%, they're going to have to go through this process alone. Um, and in New South Wales, RACS is really the only legal service that has the capacity to provide any practical legal assistance um, to asylum seekers in this group. Thankfully, last year, our principal solicitor had the foresight to um, predict that this situation might arise, and she started preparing a project um, to help people write statements about their, legal situ their situation in their home country and why they can't go back, statements that could one day in the future be used as part of their protection visa application. These statements are cr a critical part of the protection visa application process because it establishes why a person needs Australia's protection. So right now, even though this fast-track process is only just beginning, Rax has already managed to help um, around 300 people complete statements about their case. Um, the way that we managed to make this work was by harnessing the goodwill and talent of very large numbers of volunteer lawyers and interpreters. Uh, and following the success, we were able to employ um, two full-time staff to run the clinic with the support of a generous institution. And that's enabled us to be able to expand the service to about three times what it previously was. The third and final development I'll talk about is the release of children from detention on Christmas Island. And of all the things I've mentioned, it's perhaps the most perverse example of how asylum seekers can be used as pawns in the political process. In return for the crossbench senators passing this legislation about temporary protection visas and the fast track process, the federal government agreed to release all children from detention on Christmas Island. Away from the political firestorm um, about this deal, the RACS lawyers celebrated with mixed emotions because for us, it also um, marked the end of a year's worth of very hard work to try to get these children released from detention. One of our lawyers had started working with the children um, in January last year. And with limited legal options available, uh, RACS lawyers lodged complaints to the UN Human Rights Council, arguing that Australia would be breaching their human rights by transferring them to detention on Nauru. At the same time, we let the Department of Immigration know that these children have lawyers in Australia uh, and we want them to be released from detention. And in the short term, this stopped them from being transferred to Nauru. And this in itself was a huge success. But um, for the time being, the boys remained in detention, which was having serious consequences on their mental and physical health. But Rax kept in co regular contact with the boys throughout this time. Um, but we were just a voice at the end of a phone line, thousands of kilometres away. Uh, and our lawyers felt that that distance was creating problems with the tr trust and barriers to the relationship. So through the generous support of a private donor, in September last year, three lawyers were able to travel to Christmas Island and meet with them face to face for the first time. Um, for these children, Rax, and in particular, one lawyer, was the only constant feature in their lives. We built trust by providing frank and honest advice to these clients about their situation, rather than sugarcoating things or giving them false hopes. During the Australian Human Rights Commission's inquiry into children in detention, Rax was able to be a unique voice because we were in the unique position of being able to 
provide the perspective of the clients at a time when they themselves were unable to speak out. Now uh, these children are living in the Australian community, some with friends, some with family members, and some trying to make their way alone. And although they still carry many scars from the lengthy detention and the impacts that we all know that has on children, um, we've seen that they're now dramatically different, some of them, from how they were in detention. Through the support of many volunteers and private funding, Rex is now able to offer representation uh, to all of these unaccompanied minors on their immigration matters. These children will be part of the fast track assessment process um, and if successful in being recognised as refugees, they too will be granted temporary protection visas. Um, and so this will entail many challenges for them, but it's a world away from where they could have been without Rex's assistance at that crucial time when they were facing transfer offshore. So where to now? In the wake of these legal changes, at RACS we often find ourselves looking forward to the next legal changes um, because that's our only hope for potentially having some of these um, really negative impacts reversed for our clients. With every new change, we hope that RACS can be there to help explain it to people, to help them understand their legal situation and their rights and help them to deal with the consequences. I'd like to thank everyone uh, here tonight and who are not here tonight who've shown their um, generous support and leadership on this issue and for the work of RACS. Um, most of our legal services are now funded um, through private um, sources uh, and we would not be able to do the work that we've done without everyone's support. Thank you. Hello everyone. I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather and pay my respects to their elders past and present and respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people here with us tonight. Um, I also want to acknowledge as I describe one of the ways in which we have responded to some asylum seeker need um, as a law firm through our pro bono practice that we are only one of many firms that are doing that. In fact, many members of the legal profession that are acting in ways to support asylum seekers. That um, there I know many friends of RACS um, who have been um, providing support through secondments, through different um, legal engagement along the way. We originally um, got involved with um, refugee matters through our pro bono practice in a way that was more directly animated, I guess, by our lawyers than any other aspects of our pro bono practice, and that was after the Tampa events when a number of lawyers came in to the office over the weekends determined to do something about that. What they did obviously wasn't effective, and I'm sure there were lawyers around Australia doing the same thing. But that was really the impetus to where we started. And originally the work that we then got involved with was confined mostly to looking at um, the review options of people who had been declined visas by the Refugee Review Tribunal, partly because we had a number of lawyers who were already engaged in administrative law, and that was the area we were looking at, and also because it didn't require us to get migration licences, which can be quite costly. Um, so for a number of years that was the focus of what we did here at Gilbert and Tobin. And again, we work very closely with RACS and another number of community organisations supporting asylum seekers. We um, have also noticed over the past years the um, drop-off 
in um, that area of work because of the lack of processing of um, people's claims. And we were also looking at the areas of need and where they were growing, as particularly with the funding cuts for organisations that are supporting asylum seekers actually making their applications. So at that stage, we worked with um, RACS and with the Asylum Seekers Centre to provide support for a new roster that RACS was um, staffing at the Asylum Seekers Centre to asylum seekers actually putting in their applications for a protection visa. So this did require us to bite the bullet and um, get some migration licences, which we did as volunteers through RACS, um, and the process was much smoother than we anticipated, although a few of our photos were rejected because apparently our firm had um, touched them up so that we looked good for our websites, but it was no good for the AFP. So we had to go out and get very, very plain and bland-looking photos down on the corner there and send them in before we were approved for our licences and could actually start work. Um, but we started with uh, started on the roster about six months ago, and the process that um, we undertake is that after RACs um, have screened asylum seekers centre clients who are in most need of assistance. We have two lawyers that attend the roster each Monday um, for two to three hours to assist the clients through their visa application. So um, with most of them, that involves taking a statement and developing that statement. Um, it goes beyond that initial ses assessment, so the work will be brought back into the firm. Sometimes it's easier for the clients um, if we go back out to um, the Asylum Seekers Centre on a Monday and do it in a continuous way, but we're flexible around that. Um, with a number of the clients, we've also then attended the interview at the department. Um, because it's only six months old, there hasn't been too many, but we have done a few. We've also um, taken on some matters that have come to us, not through that process, but with um, RACS's support, um, had referrals made to us so that we can still do it under our migration licences as RACS volunteers. Um, to assist some other people um, that have been referred in other manners. And so we have been to a couple of RRT interviews through this as well. Um, so that has let the lawyers involved in the programs um, have quite a broad experience. And it's a very different experience from what we're undertaking before because sometimes the lack of representation um, at the RRT or the... Um, representation that was perhaps inadequate by various migration agents, none of which I'm sure are in the room tonight, um, was very frustrating when you were trying to do an RIT application, especially when you're closing it, but that's not my story. Um, so it does give us the opportunity to try as best we can to include um, the client's complete story um, in what we're doing. I think we've probably seen about 30 or 40 clients through the roster, which I know in the overall scheme of things is not a, a huge um, number of clients, but um, we're hoping that we can make a difference to those 30 or 40, and some of those are um, members of a family, so it's a little bit more extended. And of course, the people we are dealing with through that roster are people who have um, come with a valid visa of some sort. So we're not necessarily affected by a lot of what um, Gemma was talking about. However, of concern with what Gemma is talking about, and I'm sure a number of you have experienced this and I don't need to say it, but perhaps just to emphasise the concern even with the fast-tracking process and the, and the people who are identified as most vulnerable um, by the department as needing assistance, I think can be a very tricky process because a number of people are unable to articulate their claim with any sort of 
persuasiveness or any detail because of the trauma that they've experienced until they've developed some sort of relationship and I'm not sure that the department's going to be in a position to capture all of those people effectively and provide them with the um, referral to the support that they need. Um, another area in which we have also recently been acting in addition to some ongoing judicial review, we do have a few of those still dripping in, um, is in relation to people who are temporarily in Australia from overseas processing centres for medical treatment and trying to assist them in making applications for um, the ability to stay here to get the appropriate level of treatment that they want um, and need um, and to do that in circumstances that will mean the treatment is effective and often that means it's outside of a detention centre because when a lot of your trauma is associated with the detention, you're never going to get better. Um, and so we are acting for a few clients in relation to those sorts of matters as well. Um, I think that the way that a number of the legal profession have come together to, to work in um, a collaborative manner should also be acknowledged and commended. I, there is no, um, in my experience, um, jockeying for prime position. It's all about supporting people in the best way we can. There's an enormous amount of sharing of resources, um, ensuring that clients have the best protection they can by the best means. We've only met David in person tonight, but it didn't mean we weren't um, annoying him over the weekend through Amy Rogers, who's trying to hide up there. Um, so he couldn't have a peaceful weekend in relation to issues that he had expertise in that we wanted to garner um, in relation to clients. And I'm sure many of you are engaged in that, but it's something that hopefully will continue. And sometimes you actually need some funding to do that most effectively. And uh, there's been many firms um, generous in supporting that sort of approach as well. So thank you. Thank you um, both. Um, so I'm a, a barrister. I practice um, primarily in public law. Um, so sometimes I work for the government um, these days more often against. Um, I think uh, that, that and I suppose my clients are probably of varying degrees of sympathy. Um, so there was a time last year when in the High Court at different times I was working for um, bikies, um, terrorists, um, tax avoiders, um, and also refugees. Um, so all the all the people that the government loves to hate. Um, but of those, um, it's probably the work I do for refugees that's that's closest to my heart. Um, what I wanted to talk about um, this evening was um, just a few um, comments uh, or some, some, a few thoughts or, that I've had on strategic elements of litigation. Um, in respect of refugees, um, and I'm not, I don't, not by any means an expert. Um, and in fact, one of the things at the bar uh, you're encouraged to do is to really see cases as self-contained um, and in and of themselves. So you're not encouraged to think, well, if we if we win or lose this case, what is that going to mean in terms of public policy? What's that going to mean in terms of politics? Um, ethically you're encouraged to work for a particular client for the interests of that client in the particular circumstances of the case. Um, so it's actually um, people like you here tonight who work in 
um, policy, uh, who work, may work in um, politics or social change, um, who, who are probably more effective at being able to drive um, uh, change in this area. Um, but for what it's worth, um, here are some comments. So I wanted to talk about um, three um, topics tonight, so far as I've got time. Um, one is uh, Operation Sovereign Borders. Uh, another one is uh, offshore processing, and a third is um, onshore processing. So um, it's probably going to sound a bit like an episode of Q&A. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, Operation Sovereign Borders, it was about a year ago that I got a call on a Monday morning um, from a, a Sydney solicitor called George Newhouse, um, who some of you might have had some dealings with. George um, ran the Cornelia Rao litigation about a decade ago, um, and he, he, he does kind of public interest law. Uh, I think he calls himself a special counsel, um, which, which I think means that you can do whatever you like. Um, a special counsel um, at Shine Lawyers. Um, and George had just had a call, I think, from um, Ian Rintoul, um, who is a, a human rights advocate in Australia. And Ian had had a call, uh, I understand, from someone who... Um, was on a, an asylum seeker vessel um, who just said, um, I'm on an asylum seeker vessel um, somewhere in the Indian Ocean. Um, our vessel has broken down uh, and we think um, we're about to or we already have been boarded um, by Australian customs officials. Um, so what, what followed from that was the, the High Court case that became um, CPCF, um, decided earlier this year, um, heard last year. In the meantime, um, this group of um, uh, many asylum seekers was kept um, on the high seas. Um, they didn't know where. Uh, we didn't know where um, for, for a few weeks before eventually the government brought them to Australia and um, then, without telling us, um, took them to Nauru um, at 3am um, one morning. Um, there's just, just a few comments that arose out of that. Um, one is... Um, people talk about, and it's obviously the common phrase now, it's, it's an on-water matter. I'm not going to comment on it um, in, the, in the absence of information. I think people, people um, mostly think about that in terms of um, uh, distorting or depriving the um, public debate of information, um, but it has a very real effect on the ability to properly, um, for, for the courts to properly supervise uh, what is happening in respect of Australia's asylum seeker policy. Um, when we, it was extremely, CPCF would never have come about but for the fortuitous um, event that there was someone on that vessel who had a mobile phone or some satellite phone that had reception, that had a working battery that was able to communicate with someone in Australia, that had a connection to George Newhouse, to, to Ron Merkel and to some other Sydney barristers and so we were able to then file a high court challenge that day um, by, that, by, by three o'clock that afternoon. Um, the vast majority of turnbacks do not have that luck, um, do not have the opportunity to properly test whether what the government is doing is in accordance with the law. Um, the, the, the second, so that's the, the, first, the first point about the lack of information is the inability to, to find a plaintiff who can, in the heat of the moment, and, and a lot of the current asylum seeker policy does happen in the heat of the moment, you've only got a few hours before when you can properly intercept what's happening. Um, 
so the ability to find a proper plaintiff. The second thing is um, when we got this call from the person on the vessel, we didn't know anything about uh, where they were, um, what involvement the government had had in um, intercepting that vessel, uh, what the government was doing, uh, what powers the government was trying to exercise. And the first thing that you do when you turn up to court is you, you can't turn up and say, I'm someone who's on the Indian Ocean. You need to be able to tell the court, I'm on the Indian Ocean. The government has, in a vessel, exercising powers under the Maritime, purportedly exercising powers under the Maritime Powers Act, boarded my vessel, detained me, and is now taking me to a place. And for these four reasons, having regard to what the government has done, um, it is unlawful. Um, but you cannot get to that stage unless you have information about the way the policy works. And at the time, this was, this was, this was last year when we, before CPCF, we didn't know any of the details of the government's policy. Scott Morrison was going on Ray Hadley every Monday and just saying, um, it's an on-water on matter, I'm not going to tell you about it. Um, and he was having his weekly briefings and saying, zero boats, everything else on-water matter, not going to tell you about it. And so we had a great difficulties in being able to formulate a claim that could properly um, come before a court and sound in um, relief. So um, just in terms of uh, the, the absence of information, to, to the extent that people here have, a, have, have any sway, and the absence of information is not just relevant to policy, it's also relevant to litigation. Um, the next point I wanted to talk about was... Um, what is the common theme perhaps for, for people who've been involved in litigation in respect of refugees, which is that you start litigating against the government and just when you've got a good point, the government changes the facts or changes the law, one or the other. Um, so um, that's, that happens very, that's happened very often in on, on uh, ashore matters. In the case of CPCF, um, we litigated against the government for three weeks and then they changed... Well, first, while we were litigating against them, they changed the law, but only prospectively. They went through our statement of claim and every error that we had asserted, they passed an act that said that error is no... Effectively, that error is no longer an error. When you said you cannot take... The power to take has to be a power to take to a country and can't be to a vessel, they changed the law and they said you can take anyone to a vessel. When we said you can't change halfway through while you're on, on the water what destination you're taking someone to, they changed the law and said the minister can, in his discretion, change the, the location that someone has been taken to. Um, so that, that, that only applied prospectively, so it didn't affect us. What did affect us was um, when the government changes the facts. And I know it's happened to a number of people who've been challenging detention in Australia. And just, as, just when you get a good case that can properly test the limits of, of, of power, the government releases the person from detention and your case goes. So you have to start again from the outset. Um, what we had was on, on water for three weeks, the government not telling us where they were taking these people. We presumed they were taking them either to Sri Lanka or India. Um, but then just when Justice Hayne is starting to get upset with the Commonwealth, um, the Commonwealth brings them to Australia, um, to Christmas Island, then to Western Australia. And effectively, um, so far as we were seeking 
um, prospective relief, which was injunctive relief, saying you cannot take these people to the place you're intending to take them. The government never told us where they were taking them. Uh, you can't take these people to an undisclosed place. Um, we were no longer able to get that relief. Um, so those, uh, those who are lawyers will, will be familiar with the concept of mootness, uh, to, to moot a matter. Um, two consequences of, of that. Um, one, we had to change our claim to a, a claim in tort for false imprisonment. Um, because that is not a claim that could be mooted. It was a claim about the unlawful conduct that had occurred on, on the vessel. Now, legally, that gives us as strong a claim, but politically, it allows the government to say, um, look at these asylum seekers. Their business model now is to come to Australia and as soon as we're taking them back, to try and get, comp to try and get money from the government, to try and take money from the taxpayers. And at, a, at the level of the merits, um, the merits, the, the, the justice of the situation, which does matter before the courts, um, you're no longer coming and saying, I'm seeking an injunction to stop me being taken back to a place where I fear torture. You're instead going to the High Court and using effectively the same administrative arguments, but saying, I'm coming to the High Court to seek money. And it's just not as strong an argument. Um, in, the, in the United States, they have a doctrine called... Um, permanently arising yet evading review, uh, which is an idea of um, standing uh, in litigation, which says that if you're someone, say, in our CPCF position, the people who um, their, their matter was mooted so far as we were seeking injunctive relief, you can still have standing to seek injunctive relief in respect of future possible plaintiffs, so people who will be on the seas in the future, because it's a case where the issue is permanently arising, there are always turnbacks, but because of the nature of the situation, because it's on sea, limited access to courts, it evades review. Um, in Australia, we don't have that doctrine. Um, and in terms of people who are public interest lawyers here, um, I think that would be a good thing to work for, a good thing to work towards. Um, a couple of other comments on um, uh, Operation Sovereign Borders. Uh, government changed the law partway through. Um, that's largely a consequence of the fact that we don't have a constitutional bill of rights in Australia. In America, or in countries with a constitutional bill of rights, when government breaks the law, it can't just fix it, often, if it's a constitutional defect. In Australia, we largely have statutory... Uh, because our public law is largely statutory, you can just overcome it by changing the law. Um, uh, just a, a future challenges to Operation Sovereign Borders. So obviously there's been a lot of talk in the media about um, uh, payments to people smugglers this week. Um, there is a there is a there, there is likely to be a challenge to that um, if if there can be a proper plaintiff, and the argument would be um, the the government needs statutory authority to spend money. There is no statute that authorises. Um, either spending money um, to giving money to people smugglers or alternatively if there is on its face statutory authority for that um, it, it, it's ousted by the criminal code which prohibits um, individuals from uh, effectively uh, being complicit in the, the in people trafficking to another country um, so Watch, watch, um, watch this space on that. 
Um, I should say there are also CPCF. We lost four three, um, but the High Court dropped a few little bombs in there for the government. So if you can find, if if we can find another plaintiff, um, it, it, it can and will be on again. Uh, so offshore processing, um, the team that challenged uh, uh, Operation Sovereign Borders last year has largely got together again to challenge um, detention in Manus and Nauru. Um, so you, you might have seen the cases um, filed a few weeks ago. Um, the Human Rights Law Centre in Melbourne, um, they, they went on the 7.30 report um, a few weeks ago to, to talk about it. Um, so Human Rights Law Centre in Melbourne and also uh, Stacks Lawyers in Sydney. Um, the, the, the basis of the challenge is the government is um, funding and also contracting to procure detention on Manus or Nauru. And the High Court has said, said a few years ago in a landmark case called Williams that the government needs statutory authority if it's going to spend money or if it's going to enter a contract. And we say that there's either no statutory authority for it or alternatively, if there is statutory authority, it's not clearly expressed. And before the government can lawfully fund or procure detention, it needs to have clear, um, basically unmistakable language um, before you can do that. Uh, we all, we're also running some heads of power argument. Um, uh, effectively, um, the government uh, cannot, and, and Chapter 3 arguments, the argument being the government cannot procure detention um, unless there is a court order um, authorising that detention. Um, one, one thing, I'd, a few things I'd say about, about these proceedings. Um, one is I think if they're successful, it will be an, uh, an extremely important plank in the development of human rights jurisprudence in Australia because um, the critical thing the government has done here is to distance in Madison Nauru is to distance itself from the detention. Um, habeas corpus focuses on the jailer, the person who has custody of the plaintiff. And since time immemorial, people have been able to obtain release from unlawful detention by issuing a writ to the jailer. What the government has done is it has made itself not the jailer, it has instead interposed between itself and the jailer a series of private entities, like a multinational corporation trying to avoid tax. Um, so between the, the Commonwealth and the actual people on Manus and Nauru, you have um, transfer services, then Wilson Security, uh, who is some subcontracted by Transfield, and then you have a, 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 an ambiguous interrelationship between Wilson Security and the government of Papua New Guinea and the government of Nauru. Um, what that does is it, it obfuscates accountability. It makes it extremely difficult to work out who to sue, who is actually causing the problems here. Um, one very effective thing the government has done is, because it's offshore, um, those of you who know your choice of law principles know that normally torts that are uh, the, the, the law that governs a tort is the law of the place where the tort happens. So when people talk about the conditions in detention on Manus and Nauru being 
um, a cruel, inhuman, degrading or constituting torture and therefore a tort, whether it's battery or assault or some kind of unlawful imprisonment. The law that governs those torts is actually the law of Papua New Guinea and the law of Nauru, not the law of Australia. So by taking it offshore, the government changes the, the legal structure that, that regulates it. But then also courts, um, an Australian court is not going to want to apply the law of Papua New Guinea or the law of Nauru. So you basically can't get into an Australian court and you're left with the system, the systems in Nauru and obviously that extremely effective judicial system in Papua New Guinea. Um, now, that's why you need to come back to public law principles and why we've got a complicated challenge to um, payments and, and, and contracting. Um, the second reason why this would be an extremely important plank in human rights jurisprudence is uh, this is a case where we say the government, although it doesn't act have actual control of the detention, it has what um, international lawyers would call effective control. Um, the government has procured this detention by means of contracts with transferred um, and agreements with Papua New Guinea and Nauru, and it controls um, extremely um, fine details of that um, to, the, to the level where the Commonwealth can actually fire anyone who transferred employees um, in, in Manus and Nauru. Um, one, one thing I, uh, I should say, that there's, you know, there was some talk a couple of weeks. One thing I've come, come through in these proceedings is the, the actual contract between the Commonwealth and Transfield. There was some talk a couple of weeks ago about um, uh, Sarah Hanson-Young being covertly surveilled, and there was, there was a, a question as to whether that had actually happened. Um, I, I, my understanding was the government said, or the Transfield said that hadn't happened in the end, or, or at least... It, they, they, didn't, they didn't admit it. Under the, under the contract between the Commonwealth and Transfield, um, Transfield is, re is required to develop and implement a system to identify all people um, on the site um, and is to discreetly monitor the movement and location of everyone who is on Manus and Nauru. So that, my reading of the contract was that um, actually they were contractually required by the Commonwealth to discreetly monitor um, Sarah Hanson-Young um, and presumably everyone else um, who is there. Now, the one point I want to make at a strategic level about um, the, the offshore processing challenge is um, I'm briefed to challenge offshore processing. I'm not briefed to think about what will happen next. Um, I, I do and I worry that when you have these one-off pieces of litigation, um, what is the effect going to be? If we're successful... The government says, okay, well, one of two things happen. Either they just pull out and say, okay, well, we won't fund this offshore detention. We'll leave it to the, the coffers of Papua New Guinea um, and, and Nauru. Um, is that a good outcome for the people who were there? Probably not. On the other hand, the government says, well, the problem is statutory, so we'll just pass a statute that makes it even abundantly clear that we can do this. And also while we're there, we'll throw in a few other things that um, the government likes to throw in when they draft um, laws, uh, refugee-related laws these days. So I think that there's a real role um, in this space for people who can think strategically about refugee litigation um, and can think about what happens next and also about how litigation uh, is un should only be one element of a much broader strategy for social change. Um, 
How am I going on time, Francis? No? Okay. Um, Francis, I've got to, I've got to be quite... Uh, I'll, talk, I'll talk very briefly about... I'll, I'll skip over indefinite detention. I'll talk very briefly about grassroots migration litigation in Australia. So just the run-of-the-mill cases, you get challenges to RRT. Um, those of you who, who work in this space will know that the RRT relies heavily on what are called um, DFAT country assessments. And also, uh, uh, they now have to have regard to an internal policy document called PAM3. Um, for those of you who are, can work in policy, what I would those documents are relied on by the tribunal, but they are not public. Um, you, you, there is no repository of DFAT country assessments, which the tribunal relies on to um, off typically to say that refugees aren't persecuted back in their country. Um, and uh, what I would encourage people to do is there's no reason why those shouldn't be public. So lobby the government for, um, for those documents to be public because it will substantially facilitate um, proper review of the decisions. Um, and then just on fast-track processing, I think the, the view was that that was a bad idea. Just from the perspective of litigation, it's actually a chance it might increase the prospects of judicial review because instead of having tribunal members making the real decisions who you hope are reasonably um, competent, you're instead having um, departmental officials making critical decisions. Um, and and I, I suspect there's going to be some real opportunity for... Um, or the, they're much more likely not to afford procedural fairness and critical elements um, of the process than the tribunal will. Um, so thank you very much. Um, and, uh, yeah, I look forward to your questions.